0: I spent our Christmas season looking at Christmas through the imagery of the book of Revelation. And I thought I'd maybe try to do the same with the communion table. I like finding communion in places that weren't necessarily or uh, traditionally what we think of when we think of communion. And I don't know, I might be going to the well a bit too often. You might tell me, I don't know if this quite cut it. Would you mind if we gave it a try, to be able to look at this table as Revelation would see this table? Because to me there's something about the image in this world to imagine the world in which we're living, what the world uh, needs to survive, to protect itself, to advance itself, how it does what it does, how the kingdom of this world Operates and the rules, and in the midst of it, in the midst of everything, and Jesus describes it. He describes it uh, very well. He he says uh, to the disciples about the end time. You'll hear of what of wars, not just wars, but even rumors of wars, the possibility of wars that are coming. But see that you're not alarmed. This must take place for the end is not yet. And then he says, but it'll continue. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. This is the place in the midst in which they fight war in order to get what they need. And again, I, it's not that I'm okay with war. I don't think anybody should be okay with war. But as a believer in these images that Jesus gave me and living the years that I've lived and have observed and known people that have taken part in war, it's just the way that it's done here. Jesus said, "Um, how long has this been going on? How long will it continue? Uh, How long is it going on now? And how long will it continue? This is... This is the way that it is. I wanna tell you how prevalent this, uh, at least this thought is. Have you ever typed into your search engine just a few words of a question and then Google gives you a suggestion of how to finish it? You know, they base that on the number of people that are asking the same question. Last night I typed in, uh, has there ever been peace? And as soon as has there ever been, the first thing that came up was peace in this world. It's what people are asking. Have we ever experienced peace in this world? See, war is defined as an active conflict that has claimed more than a thousand lives. Has the world ever been at peace? Historians have tried to put this together. Over the past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of them. 268 years out of nearly 3,500. Three and a half millennia. Not even a quarter of a 100 centuries, of, of half of a millennia. Not even a quarter of a millennia. Have we been? at peace how many people have been di- have died in war at least 108 million people were killed in wars in the 20th century alone estimates for the total number killed in all those wars in 3500 years range from 150 million to 1 billion Another historian author says this, historians might quibble over the exact details, but by most accounts, there are no periods in history that have been free from war. Much of recorded history has also been filled with imperial or colonial occupations, where a powerful nation uses force to rule over other nations. If you use that as a definition of war, then we truly have never ever been at peace. So in the midst of this warfare, and we know how warfare gets done here, we know who wins and who loses, and we know what it's based on. And we know the blood spill, and we know the sacrifices made. And yet in the midst, Jesus has these citizens of another kingdom, people who are followers who claim to follow him who fight another war in the midst of the world fighting their wars. And in the middle of the war, in the middle of those two wars, there's this image of a table. So imagine on the worst battlefields, say in World War One and World War II, Followers of Jesus still image a table in the midst of it. There's something about the image to me of a table. See, while I can accept this is how the world gets things done, it resolves conflicts, protects themselves, things that we can't accept is that that's how we would get things done. See, we live by a different set of rules. And what we do is we have a table. David said it himself, you prepare a table for me, amen? You prepare a table before me where? In the presence presence of my enemies. See, he doesn't call us out of this earthly battlefield and set a table aside just for us. He says, no, I'll set that table in the midst of your enemies. In the midst of this war, the table is set for us. Not only is it set for us, it's also an invitation to who? To our enemies. To sit at a table. One prepared by God. I have to say it. That in all my uh, studying of history, of Earth's history, of world history, of U.S. history, we don't fight wars that way, do we? In fact, the table isn't set until somebody's ready to surrender. And that table isn't set, you, you can imagine, that table isn't set to how many lives are lost, how much blood has been shed how much horror has been accomplished before they begin to set a table, God says, no, I'll start the war with a table in the midst of our enemies. So while the citizens of the world fight for what they have to fight for, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are at war too. We fight a war, but the wars are fundamentally opposed because the goals are fundamentally opposed. And the methods are certainly fundamentally opposed. We don't fight the war of the gospel, do we? By the same rules that the world fights a war. We don't believe that we can kill people to put them into submission. In fact, we don't believe in calling them to any submission. Our war is to present the gospel, the only peace that means true peace. Peace that actually you can sit at a table in the midst of your enemies and still be at what? At peace. It's this table, this image. Table makes a lousy weapon, doesn't it? See, if I decide to fight a war in the world and I show up with nothing but a table, it's a horrible weapon, isn't it? It's a lousy weapon. In this kingdom but in the kingdom of heaven, it's the only weapon there is, a table. So it's hard to put all of this imagery in a devotion. I think that's the hardest part, but will you let me try? to do this this imagery that Revelation gives me in Revelation 6 and Revelation 19 of these two wars and the midst of the war in which we fight our war with a table while the rest of the world fights theirs with their weapons and their conventional weapons. I think that's the hardest part, but I'll try just within a devotion here. Revelation 6 says this, the history of warfare, if you will, the history of the way that we fight the war, The way that the lamb that was slain, the people that worship in the church of the lamb that was slain, this talks about our war that we fight from the time that Jesus went to heaven all the way until he comes again. By the way, the seventh church, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl all are the second coming. All of them span the same history of time. This is the seal's. The seals concern the church and how the church fights the war in the midst of this. I saw the lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures call out as with a voice of thunder, come. And I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. So the imagery is hard to, it's hard to imagine, but in, in Revelation four and five, you're given this imagery, and when it says that the four living creatures call out with the voice of thunder, remember there are four creatures uh, uh, th- that you're giving, okay? And they're uh, one of a, a, an ox, one of an eagle, one of a man, and one of a lion. Out of all of those, which one has the voice of thunder? It would be the lion, wouldn't it? Okay, it would be the lion, but the first seal has a white horse and a, white, uh, uh, and a rider on that white horse. The creature has a voice like thunder, so you can associate probably this white uh, horse with the lion, if you will, out of all of those living creatures. And all the voice says is what? Come, okay? Telling the rider to come. And I looked, and there was this white horse. Its rider had a bow, a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to what? And to conquer. So we have the lion associated. The rider carries a what? He carries a bow. He carries a bow and he has a crown on his head, and he is conquering. When you have the imagery of this, is this what you see? Riding out to do battle and to conquer. The first horse, if you will, sets the tone of the war. How you handle this one is how you will interpret the rest of the horses. We went through the seven seals about six years ago. How many here remember? None of you do, I don't either, but, but we did, okay? But how you look at the rest of them will be determined of how you look at the first one. Because the first one actually, because of that verb, conquering and to conquer, the first one actually rides for the entire period of history. Because the verb, the tenses of that, it simply means he will conquer until there is no more to conquer. Now, generally, people will look at this, and because of the language, they will take this scene as literal, and they believe that it's describing some military conquest in the first century of Earth's history. We argue, especially as Adventists, and our view of apocalyptic literature, we argue for a symbolic mean of the seals and the churches, and that they portray the events from the cross to the second coming not just limited to the first century. So the literal approach here isn't appropriate. Because this isn't talking about the world fighting a war. All you have to do is look at the weapons. He has a bow, but he has no what? He's got no arrows. If he's trying to fight a military war, he's got the wrong weapons, doesn't he? That's why you can't take this literally. But we can recognize who it is. We can recognize what's happening. He may not be a military threat. He's not gonna win a military war with no arrows. But actually, the whole vision doesn't seem to concern the rider anyway. Why? Not in the war, because he's already wearing a crown. A crown of what? A crown of victory. This isn't about the war. This is why he can carry a bow with no arrows. It isn't about him. He's wearing, uh, in Greek, he's wearing the Stephanos crown, if you will, it is the crown of victory and he's already on a white horse. So after we conclude that the literal isn't an option, then we have to fight after the view of the symbolism and we don't have time to look at opposing views, how about we just look at the right one, okay? Is that okay? We'll just look at the right one, all right? We don't have time for the wrong ones. Let's have time just for the right one. Maybe next year we'll look at the wrong ones, okay? But this right now, we know this writer, don't we? We know who he is. The lion calls him. John has already heard his voice. All the way back, the trumpet from the voice behind me. It sounded familiar enough to get him to turn around because he already knew this voice. He's heard that voice like a lion. The color white is always referred to the heavenly Jesus and or his people. Whenever you see it in Revelation, it doesn't refer to anybody or anything else. It's never applied to anything evil. It would be the only place where white would be used for anything else if you're going to attribute this to some sort of military general fighting an earthly war, actually killing people. The crown, as I said, is a Stephanos crown. Isn't quite depicted quite right in this picture. It's a laurel wreath. And in times of Rome, the the laurel wreath was worn by the emperor, why? Because he already had what? He already had victory. When a general came back to the emperor, the, the laurel wreath crown is what he would put on him, the Stephanos crown, if you will. Now when we get to 19, Jesus is wearing a diadem crown. This is a laurel of victory, the diadem crown actually is of rulership. By the way, when Jesus comes back, the second coming, he comes back as ruler of what? Of everything now. Because conquering the one place that did not belong to the kingdom is done when the second coming happens. He's not wearing the Stephanos crown anymore. The victory that gained you and me, the victory that the war that we're supposed to fight is already victorious. When he comes back, he now comes back as king of kings and lord of lords. He rules the entire universe again. But here he wears the Stephanos crown. And that crown only has to do with Jesus or his people. There's only one exception out of the eight times used. By the way, outside of the book of Revelation, in all the gospels, the Stephanos crown is only mentioned once. They call his crown of thorns the Stephanos crown. And in Revelation 12, it's the church that's wearing the Stephanos crown. The woman who is clothed in the, sun, in, the moon, in the sun, standing on the moon, her Stephanos crown has stars in them. Which, by the way, Jesus gained the victory and gave it to his church. You and I wear that crown. What about conquering then? Doesn't that sound like military to you? See, until now, every reference to conquering always referred to Jesus and his people. The crucial text is in chapter five when the lamb is the one who conquers and overcomes. Be careful in the New International Version because they translate it as triumphed or conquer is all the same word and it isn't. This conquering is the victory given to Christ and his people. It's not military terms, but it's a spiritual term. See, he said that in the world there will be wars and rumors of wars. So, wars and rumors of wars. The world has a way of fighting them, winning them, and conquering them. But does it bring about an end? No, it never ends. Because even in the midst of fighting a war, there is rumors of another war. This conquering is an end. He brings victory, he brings the end. See, that war is described in Matthew 24 also. This good news of the kingdom will be what? Will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then what? And then the end will come. This war that we fight, there is an end to it. There's no more rumors after it. There's not rumors of a victory. The victory is done. It is finished. So when you and I march now into a war that we're given, it says, okay, now it's your turn. You go fight this war. And what is the war? Proclaim this gospel. That's the war. And just as we see him in this vision, we're fighting a war that's already been won. So in a way, it's ended. We live in the now and the not yet. So without the white horse, you now have earth's history without the gospel. And as horrible as I believe that earth is now and earth's history has been and the future apparently is not going to be any better, can you imagine it without the gospel? Can you imagine this entire vision without the white horse? You're not supposed to because the white horse encompasses the entire Vision. In the midst of the enemies is the gospel. In the midst of the enemies was a manger, a cross, and now a table. Which brings us here. See, in Jesus' Uh, chapter 6, Jesus has conquered. In 19, then he becomes the undisputed, uh, undisputed ruler of the universe again. Many people don't believe yet. The second coming isn't here yet. So there is war to be fought. There is ground to be conquered, if you will. There are people who need what? There are people who need Jesus. That's the war we're fighting. The first horse is the conquering of the gospel. And how the victory on the cross is made real in everyday life. When he ruled and conquered and gave you and me the victory, now it's from now until the second coming that this war is now fought. What do we do with that victory? How do we live that out in the everyday life? The way that we do it is that we touch other people with it. And maybe or maybe not, they may make a decision for Jesus too. See, we conquer by giving the conquering to others what has been given to us. Imagine walking up to your enemies and taking off a crown of sure victory and laying it at their feet and inviting them to a table. See, it's not what others want. They want this to be literal. They want this to be a kill or be killed victory. God actually doing the killing, God carrying out vengeance the way the world would. Why? Because then we could say it isn't my vengeance, it's the Lord's vengeance that we're carrying out. And deep down, deep down, it's something that we all wanna see. But hold on about this one though. In 19 it says, I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. What do we see again? We see the white horse, he's called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Speaking of the rider, sorry, I forgot about saying that. the white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but himself. Eyes of fire and being ablaze, John has already seen that. John saw that back at the beginning of, of this time in history, if you will. Now it's still him, but he's got what on his head now? He's got the diadem crown on his head. And inscribed on that is a name that no one knows but himself. There is no one like God. He is clothed in a robe dipped in what? Dipped in blood. See, even the imagery of blood is different to somebody who fights the war of the gospel. See the war of the world when blood is shed, they lose. When you get somebody to shed blood, they lose the war. In ours, his blood was shed and he was given victory. We change even the image of blood pouring on the ground on its head and call that victory. This sure sounds like a military conquest. They all seem dressed for it, but really? Hang on a second, are they really dressed for war? I told you, I shared this before, is that I heard a, heard a preacher saying that, uh, you know what? This, this is, this is what, the, uh, what a lot of people in the church wants to happen. This is what they want. They want this to be military. He actually said this. He said, back in, in six, back at the cross, you had one shot to kill Jesus. You messed up and you didn't do it. And 19 is now him coming back and pulling out vengeance. And they want this to be military. This idiot of a preacher said, this is the picture of the thug Jesus. But are they really dressed for war? Is this what you would wear if you were going to war? To kill your enemies and take vengeance out on them? The armies of heaven were wearing what? Fine linen, what color? White and pure. By the way, they're already clothed in victory. They're not coming to carry out a war, are they? They're not coming to fight a war. And they're on white horses. They're already clothed in victory. They're dressed in white and on white horses. It means they're victorious. They're not coming to fight a war. They're not coming to kill anybody or to carry out vengeance. This is not an army that is coming to do this. This is an army that's coming for something else. And forgive me for having to use a military application. I hate it, okay, because it's it's already been been, uh, given a military meaning by the people who look at it wrong. Remember, we're only looking at the right interpretation of Revelation 19. But let me tell you this, the Marines raising the flag at Iwo Jima, are they wearing their dress Marine uniforms? You don't fight in those, do you? You ever seen the dress uniforms of all the military? The Navy one actually is what? It's white. You ever see him fight in those? No. When they put those on, they're coming for what? A different occasion. So what are these armies dressed for? Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. You know what they're dressed for? They're dressed for a wedding. He's got his wedding clothes on. Why? Because his bride has put her wedding clothes on. And it's time. That table that was set in the midst of the enemies now will be filled with nothing but his friends the bride and the bridegroom. They're not dressed for war. They're dressed for what? They're dressed for a wedding. The marriage supper of the lamb. See, Jesus' victory was one of peace over violence. No arrows. The war he fights is completely different. The war you and I fight are completely different. We fight war with peace. You've heard it said, thou shall not kill. But I say to you, don't even be angry with somebody. You've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, if they slap you on the left cheek, give them their what? Give them your right. The manger, the cross, and the table. Horrible weapons for war. But the only weapons for victory for us. So he opens his mouth. It's, a ridiculous, it's ridiculous, this, this uh, image in Revelation 19, it says that a sword is coming out of his mouth. If he was coming to kill, the sword would be in his hand. But what does he kill with? What is it that comes out of this uh, uh, writer's mouth? The word, and the word is the gospel. I've got good news for you. See, some in the church today would weaponize these weapons. They weaponize the manger. They weaponize the cross. They weaponize the tables. The beast, by the way, weaponizes them all. That's why he's the church of the beast. He uses weapons. He uses methods that are not attributed to the church of the lamb that was slain. That can't be. That's what makes him the beast. Fear, force, coercion. Military, political, civil power given to the ecclesiastical power of the church. You bring that together and you don't have the Church of the Lamb that was slain anymore. You bring that together, and this table means a whole lot different. This table is then set only for those who claim to have won some sort of victory. This table is supposed to be set even for our what? Even for our enemies. Everybody is to come here. You can't have a marriage supper without a bride and a groom. So today, that's the way we, that we celebrate it. I'm gonna I have to jump ahead here. Jesus said to them, the wedding guests cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. There's no mourning when he comes. Right now we can mourn. He isn't technically with us. And he said, and he, said he wouldn't be here until When? He wouldn't be here until he could do it again with us anew. Where? In the kingdom, the kingdom fulfilled. That wedding that he's dressed for, when he shows up, that's the next time, the only time from the upper room until now that he'll actually partake in communion with each of us. But up until then, he says, I want you to rejoice. I want you to set the table. And I want you to do it often in remembrance of me. And then to also remember that he's putting his wedding clothes on. As we put our wedding clothes on. And one day this table will have him and us together, and we won't be mourning anymore. Oh, hallelujah. Amen. That's why we're here. The marriage supper of the Lamb is what's celebrated in communion while we're on this side of the veil. Well, pretty soon he's coming. He's not going to do it with swords in his hand. He, he, he's not going to do it uh, uh, with some sort of military-type conquest. He's not going to do it to carry out vengeance on his enemies. Because if, 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 if we fight the war the way that we're supposed to, maybe when he shows up, there may not be that many enemies of him around. And how do I know that the enemies are welcome at this table? See, because I was his enemy. And he invited me to this table. Because while we were yet his enemies, he died for us. That's why we're here. That's why it's been set. I praise God that he has set this table for us.